John chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 16. Uh, normally we read several verses during this time, but we're just going to read verse 16 today. And uh, we'll read it out loud and we'll read it in unison. Beginning there with the word for. Read out loud with me. Here we go. Ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to preach a sermon this morning entitled this, The Power of John 3.16. The Power of John 3.16. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that as we look at a verse that really summarizes the whole Bible in just a handful of words. God, there is so much here. Lord, if there was one sermon I could preach to the whole world, if I could... If I could have the whole world tune in and hear one sermon preached, it would be this sermon right here. Lord, I pray that today for the one that is here and is uncertain of their eternal destination. Lord, maybe they are certain, but certain for the wrong reasons. God, this, this, this verse would pierce their heart. And God, for those of us here that are born again, that are saved... Lord, may this verse remind us, may it warm our hearts of just how much you care. What great sacrifice you made. Lord, as our names were written in your wounds, as that song that was just sung said, Lord, you became our sin for us. May that warm our hearts. Lord, I pray that we leave here today, God, with um, a greater dependence on you. For the soul that's lost, may they find salvation. May they find that rescue, that eternal rescue. Lord, I'm a frail, sinful man, incapable of expounding this verse the way that it ought to be. Lord, there are many men who are greater preachers than me that could do a better job. But Lord, I pray that you would take my frail attempt of preaching this sermon. And Lord, would you move hearts with it. We ask God that you meet with us. Holy Spirit, that you move in and out of the pews and you touch hearts. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday we looked at John chapter 3, the chapter we're in here, and we considered the story behind verse 16. We talked about a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a very smart Man knew his Bible, the Old Testament, very, very well. He would have been labeled a Bible scholar during his time. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus, what Nicodemus had was a religion. What Nicodemus did not have was a relationship. All around this country and even all around this world, there is a lot of religion. And I will say this morning that religion is a dangerous thing. Dangerous thing. God does not want you to find religion. What He wants you to find is Him. Is Him. There's a lot of religious institutions that are meeting today, but they're preaching the wrong gospel, they're preaching the wrong truth, and they're all part of Satan's plan to trip people up. Have you ever said to yourself, I know I have, have you ever said to yourself, with so many religions to choose from, how do I know which one's the right one and which ones are the wrong ones? Satan has made it confusing on purpose. And I'm here today to tell you that the word religion is found four times in the Bible, and three of the four times it is mentioned in a negative connotation. God, again, does not want you to have religion. He wants you to have Him. 
He wants you to have a relationship. Nicodemus, Pharisee, Bible scholar, he had found religion, but he had not found that personal relationship uh, through Christ and to God. Nicodemus saw the Scriptures, the Bible, as a book of rules. And he thought that he had to keep the rules in order to make it into God's heaven. He was erred in that thinking. What Nicodemus couldn't see before he met Christ was that the list of rules in the Bible was has been put there to show us that we can't keep them at all and that instead we need a Savior. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve chose sin in the Garden of Eden, God made Adam and Eve, He made them perfect, He made them sinless, but He gave them something called a free will. That free will made Adam and Eve better and above the animals. Animals can make decisions, but animals cannot make moral decisions. Only humans can make moral decisions. They do that through the exercise of a free will. God gave Adam and Eve a free will and then placed in the middle of the garden a tree and told them not to eat of that tree. You say, well, if God's a loving God, why would He even give them the choice? Every day Adam and Eve walked past that tree and did not eat it. Adam and Eve were choosing God. Choosing God. The animals did not bring pleasure to God that way, but Adam and Eve did. Satan in heaven, Lucifer, created to be an angel of light, created maybe even to be the choir director in heaven, attempted to bring his throne above the throne of God, and he was cast out. Uh, the Bible says that he was thrown out of heaven like the lightning falleth. It was instantaneous. He tried to ascend his throne above God and whammo! As fast as light travels, he was thrown out of heaven and thrown down onto the earth and Satan became instantaneously the enemy of God and through Satan's influence, Adam and Eve chose to eat that fruit and chose to bring upon all of his children, that would be you and I, uh, a sin in nature, a desire to sin. My friend, you're going to sin. You can't help but sin. You sin because it is your nature to do so. And so we got that from Adam and Eve, uh, passed down through a taunted, or rather a tainted uh, bloodline. And Nicodemus thought somehow he could overcome the Adamic fall. Somehow he could keep the law and be worthy enough of God in heaven. And Jesus was there to tell him, no, you can't. No, you can't. You see, the law is meant to show us that we can't. It is not meant to be put there to pretend that we have or that we can. Jesus took the time to so eloquently explain to this scholar how to be reconciled with God. Many religions teach, in fact, most religions, and this is why they're so dangerous. Most religions teach that in order to make it to the afterlife, on the positive side of the afterlife... You've got to behave a particular way and that if you please whatever they label as God, then you can make it in. The Bible teaches that's not exactly how it works. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. You say, well, how do I get to heaven? You need someone to reconcile you with God. You need someone to come in and settle your sin debt. God's Son... Jesus, who equally holds title as God in heaven. He left heaven on your behalf to be your reconciler. And here, Jesus, who would become Nicodemus' sacrifice, tells 
Nicodemus exactly what he must do in order to inherit eternal life, in order to go to heaven. In that explanation, we find probably the most popular verse in the Bible. We find John 3.16. You ever uh, watch a football game on TV and right in the middle of the goalposts, some guy with rainbow hair is holding up a sign that says John 3.16. You see it everywhere. People got it on the back of their cars. Uh, it's at sports stadiums galore. Tim Tebow used to put it on his eye black. You might remember that uh, when he played for the University of Florida. Uh, it is everywhere. You say, well, why? Because I believe that the entire Bible has arrows in it pointing to John 3.16. All the verses prior to John 3.16 point to it. All the verses after John 3.16 point back at it. The entire Bible is meant to tell you that you are separated from God for your sin and Jesus Christ is meant to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16 so eloquently, eloquently describes that. I'm happy to tell you that if you look in John chapter 20, Nicodemus got it. In fact, when Jesus was being taken off the cross, Nicodemus was there to help bury him. Nicodemus found the truth about his phony religion and instead found a true relationship with a man who he had had a conversation with on a rooftop at nighttime. John 3.16, a powerful verse. There's so much doctrine in it, pastors have taken an entire year to preach it. I'm going to take about the next 35 or 40 minutes. We're going to look phrase by phrase at the verse. We're going to look at what the verse means. We're going to look at the power of John 3.16. Let's jump right in this morning and look at the first uh, two words of the verse there. And the verse will slowly come up on the screen with different parts of it emphasized. Notice the first two words there. For God. For God. Several decades ago, there was a preacher named S.M. Lockridge that lived. What I'm going to have him do for us, he's much more capable of doing than I am. As you watch this um, slideshow of his sermon, I hope it moves your heart the way it moved mine as we look at God as our King. Hit the next slide there for us. And turn the volume way up. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's in turnless form. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He claims the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. 
He defends the feet. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And He beautifies the meek. Do you know Him? My King is a King of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know Him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. You can't even beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's what... For God. For God. You see, the rest of the verse means nothing until you accept that God is God. Many people never get to the gift of John 3.16 because they won't accept that God is the Creator of the world. He created you and I. You cannot intellectually believe that we got here by an accident and then with your heart trust in a God that you don't even believe created the heaven and the earth. God is your Creator. We also say about God this morning, before we move on to the next two words of the verse, that His judgments are perfect. You say, Pastor, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is it that uh, uh, someone can commit multiple murders and God doesn't stop them? How is it that children can be violated and not be and, and, and that not be stopped? How is it that a child can contract an awful disease and die and God not step in and do something if there is a God and He's all-powerful and He's all-capable, then why does He not step in and do something? And the truth is, is that when Adam and Eve chose sin, they chose death for themselves and their children. They chose a free will and death with it. Their sin brings about disease and death. And that is Adam's fault, not God's fault. By the way, if you're so cocky as to think that you would have not chosen to sin in the garden, my friend, you would have chosen to sin as well. God is not a respecter of persons. Neither is sin. Sin is not a respecter of persons. Don't be so cocky 
has to think that you can get to heaven without first accepting God for exactly who He is. If you try to take an ant crawling across the ground and teach him trigonometry, you have a better chance of getting that ant to understand trigonometry than you do to get a human being to understand God. That is how much higher His ways are than ours. For God. Notice that next part of the verse, the next two words. So loved. So loved. That word so. So indicates... Uh, first, the word so. The word so indicates both the degree of how much God loved and the manner of which He loved. That word so provides both sense and syntax. The Greek adverb here describes a love that is intense. It describes a love that is limitless. And it describes a love that is fully adequate. In order for us to understand love, we must look at the true standard of love. Now, if I could use an analogy here to help you understand this, we all know about the atomic clock, right? Back before cell phones had precise atomic clock time on them and cell phones were a thing, uh, people would have a way of checking the atomic clock to make sure their clocks in their house were set. How many of you remember back to a day where you had to look at another source to be able to set the clocks in your house and get them right? Anybody here remember that? All right. Uh, uh, now, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Several decades ago, there was a radio station uh, that set their clocks by the clock store across the street and the clocks that were in the window. And the clock store set their clocks by the time announced on the radio station. And so the one would get their time by the other, and then the one by the other, and after several months, and even after a couple of years of that, they were a good seven to eight minutes off of everybody else's time, and totally oblivious to the fact that their time was wrong. We live in a world that sets their definition of love by the people in the world that are fallen sinners. And sinners that set their definition of love by the fallen world around them. And the one looks at the other that looks back at the other. And my friend, love has been so twisted and distorted and changed that even if you take a child and raise them in a sheltered Christian home, the world will take their definition of love in such a way where we don't really know what love is. God gives us love. Satan gives us lust. Most of what uh, the world wants to pass off as love is really just lust. You say, Pastor, can you contrast love and lust this morning? I can. Love says I'll give. Lust says I'll take. Love looks outward while lust looks inward. Love expects to suffer for the better of others. Lust, rather, expects others to suffer for the betterment of oneself. Love revolves around the need of others, while love expects everyone else to revolve around that lustful soul. Another way of putting it would be this, love is selfless, while lust is very, very selfish. What is the atomic clock of love? What is the perfect standard of love? The Bible tells us in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. He is love. Uh, you don't look up at God and shake your fist and say, fist and say, you're mean or you're nasty or you're unkind. No, the Bible tells us that God is love. 
many people think they love and that they give love, but unfortunately our love is tainted by sin. Can I tell you today that Hollywood does not have love figured out? Love is not a bedroom scene. Love is not a kiss. Love is not a romantic touch. No, that is, that is uh, in, in a lot of ways, when it's done outside of the right confines, that's lust, not love. Love, uh, love is not defined by the music industry and the garbage they try to shove down our throat. No, love is defined by a God who loved His creation. Do you know this morning God made you and I with a strong desire to both feel loved and give love? But you know our sin nature, you know what it does? It too often it gets in the way. And instead of giving love, we want lust. Instead of spending time around people who know what love is, we spend time around people who are lustful. They want us to love them. And a vicious cycle continues. My friend, I'm here today to tell you that God loves you. Who does God love? Well, the next two words of the verse show us that. For God so loved, those next two words, the world. The world. The Greek word, the root word here for the word world is the word cosmos. Cosmos, which means all of mankind. You might be here today, you might be listening to the sermon on YouTube or on our church's website. Someone maybe purchased this CD to you and gave it to you to listen to. You might think that God does not love you. You may even think that you are unworthy of His love. You may think, how could a God love me? And I'm here today to tell you that God is a master at loving the unlovable. God is a master at looking at the filthiest, most wretched, vile soul and saying, yes, I even love him, I even love her. You cannot fall outside of God's grace. There is no way you can fall outside of His reach. I had someone ask me one time, how is it that God could forgive a pedophile? Somebody that treats children so awful. How is it that God could give salvation to someone such as that? How could God love them? I looked at that person and I said, can I tell you something? If I was God, I would not love that person. I think of someone who hurts and violates little kids. Hatred and anger begins to boil up in my heart. I find and reach the limitations of my love. This morning, I'm happy to tell you that God has no limits. God has no limitations. You see, God loves the vilest sinner. You say, I'm not worthy for God to love me. My friend, this morning I'm here to tell you, God does not love you because you're worthy. He loves you because He is worthy. He is worthy. God looked down at His creation. He saw the most cleaned up person who lives the closest to the law but still falls short. He sees the person who neglects the law, hates the law, breaks every law there is, and He says, I love them all the same. If you're here today and you're breathing air, God loves you. For God so loved the world. Notice those next three words, that He gave. That He gave. A few minutes ago, we talked about love versus lust. 
We said that love gives and lust takes. I'm here today to tell you that love is not simply a noun, but beyond that, it's a verb. It's a verb. In fact, more importantly, it's a verb. You see these little high school teeny bop kids walking around and they say, I'm in love. That's not love. I'm in love. You buy a new car. Oh, I'm in love with this new car. You buy a house. I'm in love with my house. Love in its weakest form is a noun. In love. That would be, love there would be a noun. It would be the object of the preposition. In being the preposition. And that is the weakest form of love. Love is not simply a noun. Love is a verb. Love is action. Love is choosing to do things for someone else. You say, what is love? Uh, Love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. Love is saying that I know in order to love you, there are going to be times I'm going to have to sacrifice myself on your behalf. What is love? Love is crying. Crying with those who are hurting. Love is laughing with those that are happy. Love is provision. Love is providing for others even when they're not worthy of your provision. Love is late nights at work to earn that paycheck to put groceries on the table. Love is providing support to someone who's hurting. Last night I was going over my sermon one more time and just reviewing it and praying over it and preparing it. Angela was sitting on one couch, I was on the other one, and I said to her, I said, I read to her the list of verbs down here I have that define love, and I said, can you give me another one? And she said, how about spoiling someone? Spoiling someone. I think that's a good verb for love. You go out of your way to do something over and above in extra form. Maybe buying your spouse a a candy bar or taking your kids out for ice cream or showing them just a little bit extra. How about love love is blessing someone? Going out of your way and doing something extra kind. When was the last time you saw a homeless person standing on the corner and you rolled the window down and you actually looked at them with eyes of love and you gave them a gift card to McDonald's or to some restaurant to help feed them or, or you, you took them and you maybe put them up in a hotel room for a night and give them a place to be off the street. When was the last time that you were a blessing to someone else? You went out of your way to bless someone. Lust says, you bless me. Love says, I'll be a blessing to anyone God puts in my path. Last verb I put down here is give. Give. The Bible says, therefore, God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. I think back about some of the gifts I've given to people in my life. And the price that it cost me. There are times where I've really spent a lot of money and time on people. When I hold that list up to what God gave for me, boy, it pales in comparison. You know, if I were to come home at night, every night, walk in the front door, throw myself in a lazy boy chair, which I don't have, but throw myself in a lazy boy chair, get my drink, get a newspaper, maybe turn on the news, whatever, and sit in my chair uh, and not get up all night and yell out from the living room to Angela, Hey, hey, sweetheart, I love you. I don't think she'd feel very loved. What if God, after Adam and Eve had sinned, looked down at mankind, fallen mankind, and said, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything to help you. 
Is that love? I think about some of the things I've given to others. I was reminded on the 25th of last month that Christmas is four months away. You know what I did when I was told that? I squeezed my wallet real hard. (laughs) Christmas is coming. All right, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to give you a chance to show off. How many of you already have all your Christmas presents bought? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, we we got a hand back here. There's always one in the crowd, amen? Everybody hates you right now, Elizabeth. You know, I think back to the years of, uh, of uh, uh, buying things for my children. And listen, we always put Christ at the center of Christmas. And uh, we always read the Christmas story. and We always talk about Jesus being born on earth. We make it about Christ. But I think about uh, the sacrifice of finances I've given to buy gifts for my children. I think about my wife and all the, I won't say how much, all the money I have spent on jewelry for her. You know why? Because I love her. I think about I think about my time and energy that I give up to hurting church members. And this isn't about bragging on me. Again, my list pales in comparison. I'm trying to make a larger point here. Walking into emergency rooms at midnight and being on the phone with hurting church members at 2 in the morning that are grieving in some way, struggling in some way the time and energy sacrifice that is required in order to be a good pastor of a flock. I think about my tithes and offerings that I give the Lord because I love Him. I think about the many times I've taken a homeless person to a restaurant and put a burger in their stomach. And one instance I put, or rather several instances, where I've pumped my own money into people's gas tanks. Some of the things that I give are small and some of them may be considered pricey. But when you look at what I have given compared to what God has given, boy, God sure gave us a lot. God bought you a gift. You say, Pastor, what did God have to give up to buy that gift? For God so loved the world that He gave, look at that next phrase, His only begotten Son. His only begotten Son. Now, let me just really quickly insert this in here for you. If you're not using a King James Bible, what it probably says there is, He gave His one and only Son, or something like that. Do you know if your Bible says that, your Bible is not accurate. The Bible says that the angels are called the sons of God. So how could Jesus be the one and only Son if the angels are God's sons? John chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says that those that receive Him are called the sons of God. So how could Jesus be the one and only Son if all Christians are the, all saints are the Son of God? However, the King James Bible defines it this way, that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, that is an accurate statement. Let me share with you what the word begotten means. The word begotten means unique, the one and only of the same kind or class. The one and only of the same kind or class. Now that is an accurate statement. Jesus, while there are other sons of God, none of them fit in the class of Jesus. He is God's divine Son. He is unique and one of a kind. He is perfect and untainted by sin. He is God the Son. 
What did God give up? What price did God pay for you and me? He paid the price of His only begotten Son. How much would you have to love someone in order to give up your son on their behalf? I'm a father of a son. My, my son's name is Matthew. He is eight years old. Those of you that attend here regularly, you know Matthew. Matthew and I have a really good relationship. I'm very happy about that. We do all kinds of things together. One of the things we do every night, I tuck Matthew in bed and I hug him and tickle him and I pray with him. I pray and he prays and I give him a kiss on the cheek and I tell him how much I love him. Friday night we were at our men's camp out. We had a good time of devotion and then uh, several comments were made in regards to just more comments, just more feedback about the thought that was being discussed. We finished that, we finished that time of devotion with a time of prayer and one of the men started and the Men were encouraged to pray. The men were encouraged to pray and, and the, whoever wanted to pray could pray and pray as long as they wanted to pray. And then there was a, a assigned person to close in prayer when everyone was done. I did not encourage the children to pray, but I didn't stop them either. Several people prayed and there was a moment of silence and my son, all on his own, jumped in and started praying. The love I have for him caused me to tear up. After Matthew finished praying, another man prayed, and little, little Levi Holly began to pray as well. Again, no one told him to, all on his own. and I'm sure that must have really touched his father's heart. I can't imagine taking my son and sending him on a mission to suffer a death sentence for a vile, vile person. I can't imagine giving my son up for even someone who I love. How much does God love you? So much so that He sent His Son to earth on a mission of dying on your behalf. We talked about Adam and Eve and their sin in the beginning of the sermon. We talked about how that separates us from God. People yawn when they see a cross. They shrug their shoulders at the thought that Jesus died for the sins of the world. My friend, while Christ died for the world, more importantly, more specifically, Christ died for you. He died for you. He loved you so much. He looked ahead in time and He saw your life. He saw your sin. He saw the damnation of your sin. And He said, I'm going to butcher my son on a cross so that you don't have to die and go to hell. How much do you have to love someone to do that? You say, Pastor, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Who, who is this gift for? He, he purchased this gift with the life of His Son. Who is this gift for? Look at the next part of the verse there. It says, that whosoever. That whosoever. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever. Who did Jesus sacrifice for? Whosoever. Who did God the Father give up Jesus for? Whosoever. 
Who is the gift that Jesus bought available for? It's available for whosoever. My friend, this morning, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't even matter what your religious affiliation or background or lack thereof is. If you are a human being and you are breathing air, then the gift of God is available for you. It's available for you. You may ask, well, Pastor, I know how the gift was paid for. And I know who the gift's available for. But, Pastor, how do I receive this gift? John 3.16, look at that next part of the verse. It says, believeth in Him. Believeth in Him. Aha! Here we uncover the one and only obligation of sinful man. We must believe. We must believe. God in heaven looks down at Adam and Eve and all their children, sees the sin, and says, we must come up with a plan to buy them back. We must come up with a plan to punish their sin without punishing them. God the Son volunteers. He says, I'll go down to earth. I'll become one of them. I'll wrap myself in flesh. I'll live a life. I'll allow a jealous, angry, ugly men to, to, to kill me. And while I'm dying, God the Father, You take all the sins of every human being that, that's lived and allow me to become that sin and then kill me on that tree. I will suffer the consequences of their sin and I will buy them the gift and it will be available to everyone. How many believe that Jesus died for everyone when He died on the cross? Is everyone going to go to heaven? It's available to whosoever will. But not everyone's going to go. You say, Pastor, what do I got to do? Let's say that it was uh, my son's birthday. And I bought him a present. Went down to the store and I bought him a present. And I gift wrapped it. Put it in a box. Put wrapping paper and a big bow on it. And I set it out there on the table. He sang happy birthday to him. He blew up the candles. He opens up everybody else's gift and then it comes to mine. And he looks at it and says, no, I don't think so. I don't think I'm interested in that gift right there. What? But son, I, I paid for it with my money. He said, no, I don't think I'm worthy of that gift. Son, yeah, you've gotten in trouble some this year, but it doesn't matter. I'm not buying this because you're worthy. I bought it for you because you're my son and it's your birthday. Open the gift. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you for it. You can't pay me for it. It's a birthday present. But, but here's $20 I saved and I want to give this to you. No, son, it's a gift. All you've got to do is receive it. No, no. And he leaves it on the table. You see, my friend... You must first accept that God is who He says He is. You must accept the book that He's written is true. You must accept the fact that He sent His only Son to purchase the gift for you. You must accept that it is for you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It's for you. And then you must extend, watch this now, watch this. You must extend the hand of faith. You must extend the hand of faith. It's not enough to know up here in your head. It's not enough to intellectually know the facts of salvation. You've got to believe right here in your heart. What's Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 tell us? Listen to this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus shall believe in thine heart 
What is the heart? It is the mind, the will, and the emotion. That God hath raised Him, Jesus, from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with a heart, man believeth in the righteousness. And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. There was a day where I saw that I was a sinner, inept, incapable of getting to heaven. I could not earn my way to heaven. God did not want my righteousnesses. They were filth to Him in comparison to His His purity and, and how perfect He was. I threw myself down on my face and I realized that my sin was going to send me to hell. And I bowed my head and I prayed and I called out on God and I accepted the gift of salvation. I believed with all my heart. There's a part of the verse here that isn't pleasant, but is ever a bit as much important. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, notice those next three words, can you read them out loud with me? Should not perish. Should not perish. This message is growing to be more and more unpopular in America. The more unpopular it grows, the more important it is that it's preached. You say, what message is that, preacher? There is a literal hell. People are going there by the groves. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, Therefore God, that's God the Father, sent not His Son, God the Son. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him, on Jesus, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here's how this works. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of us are born with our feet on a path to hell. We're condemned because of our sin. We're born condemned. We must choose to trust in Jesus. When we choose to believe in what Jesus did, we choose to accept the gift of God purchased by the life of Jesus on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His blood atoning power that was shed. When we choose to accept that and believe that, God gives us the gift of eternal life. What happens? He takes our feet off the path of hell and He puts our feet on the path to heaven. Unfortunately, people by the groves are dying. And they're falling into hell where they will be punished for not accepting salvation. You say, how can God be love if He sends people to hell? Listen, God is love, but God is just. God will not allow sin to exist in His presence. Can we for a minute pause, take a time out, and instead of looking at this from a human standpoint, can we look at this from a divine standpoint? Put yourself in God's shoes just for a minute. You create Adam and Eve. You make them perfect. You put them in basically heaven on earth. You promise them that if they can behave themselves, they'll live forever. They choose against you. You told them if they ate the fruit, they would die. Because you're a God of integrity, you've got to follow through on your word. But then you find a way around it. You say they are sentenced to death. I'm going going to find a way to pardon them. So you take your son, your only begotten son. You send them to earth. They're born through the bowels of a virgin woman. And that young man, uh, uh, Jesus, grows up and becomes an adult man. And, and he lives a sinless life. He's God on earth. And then you allow your son to die on behalf of mankind to provide them a pardon. 
And then you have arrogant men who look at the cross in the story of the Bible and shake their fist and say, that's narrow-minded! I want to get to heaven my way! If you butchered your son on a tree for that person who's shaking their fist at you, you know what you would tell them? You'd tell them to go to you tell them to go to hell. God has every right to send people to hell that don't accept him. He's every right to do it because he made the way possible. How is it that you keep from perishing in hell? How is it that you have notice that last phrase. Put it up there for me. How is it that you have everlasting life? You got to believe You've got to accept. The gift is life in heaven that lasts forever. That's what everlasting means. Can you think of a greater gift to give somebody than that? I sure can't. You know, your flesh, that thing everybody looks at, that thing you bathe and you you spend so much time grooming and... You know, that might, that might live to be a hundred, maybe a hundred and two, hundred and three. At some point, that flesh is going to die and go into the ground. But you have a soul that's going to last forever. Now, follow me here. This is important. The decision you make while your flesh is alive will affect what happens to your soul forever. You want to reject Christ? You're going to spend eternity in hell. You want to reject the gift and leave it on the table and not open it, not believe? Then damnation's coming your way. You want to accept the gift of everlasting life? And God is going to give you eternal life and that soul is going to live in heaven uh, forever with God. Let me just finish with this. If you can humble your heart, humble your heart, and believe in Jesus, and accept Him and His sacrifice, then you will be given the gift of everlasting life in heaven. Let me close with a story. This story is about a little boy named Joey. Joey lived many decades ago in a large metropolis area. Both of Joey's mom and dad suddenly died, and Joey became an orphan living on the streets as a young preteen boy. Joey did not want to get caught by the police. He didn't want to be put in the foster care system. So he worked hard to elude the system. Joey would sleep in obscure back alleys and cardboard boxes. And he would dive in dumpsters and eat what he could. And try to find soup kitchens and sneak in and get what he could and get out before being spotted. And people becoming suspicious of him. One cold winter night in a northern town, Joey shivered his way through the night. He woke up with soot on his face and, and, and windburn on his nose and, and cracks in his fingers from, from, uh, from, from lack of moisture on his hands. Joey was starving and Joey was cold and Joey's clothes were ragged and torn. Joey saw a large old church building with a soup kitchen inside. and Joey made his way inside that church building. He found a couple that was walking in and he walked in behind them as to pretend as though he was their child. He sat there near them and he just slurped up his soup and ate his bread and there was a kind man in there who noticed Joey and 
sort of became suspicious of him, went and sat down next to him and said to Joey, he said, young man, I'm not here to ask any questions. He said, but I just want to know one thing real quick. Are you an orphan? Joey ignored the question. He said, Joe, he said to him, he said, uh, do you have a place to stay? Joey, again, just ignored the man. He said to him, he said, what's your name, son? And He muddled, muddled out of his mouth. He said, my name is Joey. He said, Joey, he said, I don't know if you have provisions or not, but I want to tell you about a place that will take good care of you. A place that will put a roof over your head and give you a place to take a bath and a warm, hot meal in your stomach. He said, you take, you go out of the church building, you go right down the road, and you walk about four blocks, and you come to Mark Street. You take a left on Mark Street, you go down about three blocks, and you'll see John Street. Take a right on John Street, go down to the 300 block, and find the home that's 316. It'll be on your left-hand side. He said, I want you to go up and knock on the door there of 316 John Street, and every time they ask you a question, I want you to look at them, and I want you to say, John 316. You answer John 316. If you answer anything else, you'll be asked to leave. The man got up and walked away. Joey finished his soup and his bread, and he walked out of the door, and he debated whether or not he should go through it, but desperate and cold and hungry and, and dirty and, and stinky, he took a right and he walked down the several blocks. He took a left on Mark Street. He took a right on John Street, down the 100 block, down the 200 block. He crossed over onto the 300 block, 304, 308, 312. There it was, 316, a middle, upper middle class home with a solid wood door. He walked up and with his chaffed fingers, he knocked on that door. And after a time, a lady came to the door and opened it. She was wearing an apron and there was flour on the apron and a sweet smile on her face and a song in her, in her voice. And she looked at him and said, can I help you, young man? A little Joey looked up at her and he said, John 3.16. Well, they said, oh, okay, I understand. Come on in. Come on in. And Joey walks in. He's just looking around. Everything's in its place. The walls are decorated. Home's very well taken care of. She looks at him and says, young man, you, you, your clothes are torn and dirty and you look like you're pretty hungry. You look like you could use a nice hot bath. She said, can I take you and get some bath water started for you? He looked at, at her and he said, John 3.16. She said, okay, follow me. She walked him down the hall and into the bathroom. She got some nice hot water running and she got a change of clothes that was about his size and laid it there and got a nice, plush, luxurious uh, hotel-style towel and laid that there on the counter and put out a brand new toothbrush and toothpaste and soap and, and, and shampoo there on the uh, by the bathtub. And she said, I'm going to go and back into the kitchen and continue to prepare a meal. Would you like to take a bath now? And he looked up at her and he said, John 3.16. Joey slipped into that bathtub. He began to wash himself, and he thought to himself, I don't know what John 3.16 is, but John 3.16 sure is getting me clean. <laughs> he slipped out of the bathtub, got himself dried off, and his stomach was just growling. He got into those clothes provided to him, and he uh, opened the door to the bathroom, and as soon as he did, he was smacked in the face with the best aroma you could ever imagine. 
That lady had a Thanksgiving-style dinner prepared. I mean, a butterball turkey coming out of the oven, stuffing, I shouldn't preach this way, it's lunchtime, amen, stuffing and, and mashed potatoes and, 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 and green bean casserole and gravy, and there was a stack of, of, of rolls with butter just glistening on the top of those rolls. And I mean, he was salivating more than you are right now. And uh, Boston Market's going to be popular after church today. Amen. Uh, so uh, he, she said, would you like to eat? And he looked at her and he said, John 3.16. She said, well, come in here. And he pulled up a chair. And I mean, that boy ate like food was going out of style, like it was the last meal of his life. He ate and he ate and he ate. And he finished up his plate. It had been piled high. She said, would you like seconds? And he said, John 3.16. And she brought him more food. And man, he, he ate all that. And he sat back and he felt like he was just going to pop. She said to him, I got a hot apple pie coming out of the oven and I've got some vanilla ice cream in the freezer. Would you like some dessert? He got a big old smile on his face. He said, John 3.16. She brought that over to him and he, he devoured that. That night he curled up by the fire with a blanket and a dog. He laid there looking into the fire. And he thought to himself, I don't know what John 3.16 is, but... John 3.16 has given me a hot bath and has filled my stomach and has brought me to some very kind people. The evening passed and it approached bedtime. And she said to him, young man, did you bring any pajamas with you? He said, I did not. She said, I've got some pajamas for you. Or rather, he said, John 3.16. And he didn't want to risk getting thrown out. She walked him down the hall and took him to a little bedroom where there was a nice cozy bed and laid out some pajamas for him, and he put those on. And She came in to tuck him in bed that night. As he climbed between the sheets, she said to him, I hope you have a good night. If there's anything I can get you, let me know. And as she was walking out, he said to her, he said, Ma'am, I don't know what John 3.16 is, but John 3.16 has taken good care of me today. That, young, that woman slipped out, went to her bedroom and got her Bible. She came back and she sat down next to little Joey on the edge of that bed. And she showed Joey not just how to have his physical needs taken care of, but how to have his eternal debt settled. And that night in borrowed pajamas next to a borrowed bed, little Joey got on his knees and he asked Jesus Christ to give him that gift of everlasting life. My friend, if you're here today, you've not asked Jesus to give you that gift. Today is the day to let John 3.16, the power of it, be personal to you. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.